This interview was conducted during the 2020-2021 winter break. Welcome to Project Teachers Lounge, where we talk to educators about their time working during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Shane T. Watson, and I'll be your host. So we have Dr. Amy K. Rankin, a professor of uh, educational studies. Would that be a correct thing to say? Yep. Okay, so for the, I'm going to read your bio I found on your website, and I was like, I want to introduce you correctly. Um, okay. For the past six years, Dr. Rankin has been a professor in elementary and early childhood programs. During her experience in higher education, she was able to connect with organizations and individuals statewide and nationally, statewide being Illinois. Through these connections, she was able to provide training, consultation, and leadership guidance while also continuing her research. From these experiences, she found her passion to contract slash work with school districts and regions focused on trauma-informed practices, content method implementation, addressing challenging behaviors, and focusing on developmentally appropriate practice. Additionally, she has worked at the state level as an independent contractor focused on competency-based education and technology embedded assessments. And she's also a podcast host for Difficult Conversations. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Amy K. Ranking to this interview. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you for signing up. And how are you doing today? How are you doing this, this semester, this nine months? How are you doing? Um, it was a tough semester. Um, I'm, as I'm sure many people in education will say, they're glad it's over, but I have learned so much and I feel like I'm ready to jumpstart second semester with a lot of the lessons that I've learned um, as a professor, um, as a consultant, as a mother of a child who's doing remote learning. Um, so I feel like I've just been able to learn a lot and hopefully that will start me off on a better, um, at a better place for, for semester two. <laughs> Great. We're definitely getting into that. But first, I want to ask you, how did you get into becoming a professor? Like, what was your route to professor life? Yeah. So I started teaching. I taught overseas. Um, so um, right after college, I went overseas and I taught in Kenya. And um, when I, I got sick while I was in Kenya, pretty sick. And so they had to send me back to the United States. And when I came back, I realized that um, I could have the same impact for children in the United States as I was having in Kenya. And so um, I did not go to undergrad for teaching, but I found teaching kind of when I came back. And I taught on the south side of Chicago, northwest Indiana, um, and I taught early childhood. So um, pre-K, kindergarten, second, and then I taught what were called bubble students. So students who could almost pass the state test, but they just needed a little bit more help. So sixth and fourth grade for that. Um, and then once I kind of had a kid and didn't want to raise him in Chicago because it was overwhelming, I moved um, and started my doctorate. Um, and so that kind of led me down the path to join higher ed. I really like writing and I really like research. Um, and then obviously I like to, to kind of educate others about um, the processes that I'm learning through my own research that I know teachers just don't have the time to do as much research as, as I do. Um, and so kind of pass that knowledge on. Nice, that was a lot in there. Kenya, back here, Chicago, Northwest Indiana, had a kid, doctorate studies and the non-traditional path to becoming a teacher, which I feel it's pretty common these days. A lot of people don't go to school to become teachers, but end up being teachers. I have a lot of friends who did that. I kind of slightly did that for a little bit. So I definitely <laughs> understand that. Um, and so this semester, you said, you know, you're, you've learned a lot this semester. So I want to ask, are you teaching in person, virtually, hybrid? How, what's your mode of 
educating. Yep, everything is virtual. Um, so the state universities in Illinois um, have committed to being virtual at least this whole um, school year. Um, some of them have already signed on until January of 2022. So we wow. are completely virtual. Yep. Okay. Um, and so I feel like college, you're also the first professor. So I feel like college is a little bit different because um, with high school and uh, middle school, there are like families involved kind of, and there are probably families involved with uh, college as well, but the relationship building is different because you're dealing with adults now. So how did August comes or September, depending upon your start time, uh, what was your game plan? Like you come in, it's August and like, what do I do now? Because you said, I'm like, hey, let's do, at least I remember college was like, let's do the get to know you icebreakers and that everybody like kind of dreads, but also really needs to do. So what is, what was your method of getting to build relationships with your students? Um, yeah, so that was really difficult because um, they are, so college students are um, not quite adults. However, in a year from the time that they have me, they will be in an adult world by themselves living adult lives. And so it's really that hard place of, I can't, mandate that you have your camera on, but like it would be really nice to have your camera on so we can see each other. Um, and so what I did is I just did a lot of research on um, good programs. So there are some programs that, and I did a lot of breakout rooms in Zoom. So I might not have necessarily gotten to know them um, as intimately as I normally would, um, but they got to know each other, um, which I, looking back, I wish that I would have maybe done some more smaller groups with just me because in person, I have um, really kind of laid back relationships with my students before and after class, right? Like they come in early and we have conversations and I get to know about their boyfriends or girlfriends or their kids, you know, like I get, and I didn't, didn't get any of that because they signed on at one o'clock when class started, they didn't have their cameras on and then they signed off when we were done. Mm -hmm. um, and so building those, um, building that community is so important. Um, and I built a community with the students, but with me, it didn't necessarily happen this semester. And so that's one of the things that I'm really going to focus on is me being assigned to groups and really getting to know the ins and outs of students. Um, and then another thing I did was having optional office hours and it was on the weekends. And so they were more laid back. And so the students that did take advantage of that, um, they like met my son and I got to see their animal, you know, like it was more of that laid back kind of community building. Um, so virtually it's hard. I don't, there's no one way. Um, my students were able to build relationships, but this semester I'm going to say, I don't know my students as well as I have in the past. Gotcha. I feel like you hit on something. One, uh, like even though like you might not have built the best relationships with them or built those relationships you love the because I, I imagine you're teaching first year students and them being They're juniors juniors and seniors gotcha yeah. um still being virtual like being able to meet your classmates and having those relationships because I feel like that was the part that I feel like a lot of people thought was going to be missed and you kind of like although you kind of took yourself out the picture letting them meet each other is probably really helpful for them um I would imagine and you already answered my next question, which was what are some in-person methods that you're making that you have to adapt to be virtual um, or let go and having office hours on the weekend like that's that's above and beyond, in my opinion. Um, but I, I remember being in college, like have, being able to meet professors and their families and like that intimate relationships definitely helped to get to know them better and understand professors better. So I imagine that's definitely going to help uh, for next semester as well. 
Right. Uh, and like some of my past students, like I would have their cell phone numbers. And like if I was having a bad day, I would text them and be like, hey, grab me a Starbucks on your way. I'll excuse you for, you know, like a couple minutes and I'll Venmo you money. Right. Like so I had like that type of relationship with my students outside of class. Like I'm a pretty strict professor, but outside of class, they knew that like we were friendly and we were, you know, like I'm not mu that much older than some of my students. Some of my students were older than me. So um, I, that is something I really missed this semester is that people didn't get to necessarily see my fun side. They just saw my professor side. <laughs> I feel like I've heard that a lot. Um, and so you said they're, they're not required to have their cameras on. So what are you, you, what are you doing to keep them more engaged, even though you can't actually see them? So, um, yeah, so one of the strategies that I picked up from a colleague is that every seven to 10 minutes, they have to do something that engages with each other or with me. So every seven to 10 minutes, I have um, like an interactive thing where you have to like text something and it goes up on our screen. So there's a program that does this, or I throw you into breakout rooms and you have to come back and present on something. Um, and normally in a, in a course, I wouldn't do every seven to 10 minutes, but research shows that you kind of need to have that every seven to 10 minutes interaction or students are driving and they're not paying attention or students are still laying in their bed and not paying attention, you know, like those types of things. So um, really in the intentionality of interactions. And how is that fared when you were doing using those techniques? Um, it worked um, pretty well. I still obviously are always going to have students who are not engaged, um, but it kept my students engaged to the point of they're like, whoa, like we have three hour classes. Class is already over. Like, yeah, <laughs> I keep it moving. Let's go. Right. Like every seven to 10 minutes, you're doing something new. So it doesn't seem like three hours. Gotcha. And can you kind of talk about your subject matter and what you teach and how you teach it? Yeah. So I teach early childhood and elementary courses. So mostly I teach content courses. So how to teach math to young children, um, how to assess young children through assessment. Um, and then another course I teach is collaboration. So how to have build collaborative relationships with lots of different people. Um, and so the way I um, teach, they're always textbook based, um, but they always come in and we do like a I call it a checking in. It's like, how are you coming to me with mind, body, spirit today? Um, so you can just share a word or something like that. And then um, usually what I do, and I tried to use, do this um, virtually, is I teach for about 10 minutes, and then we do something with that. And then we teach for about 10 minutes. So for math, I'll teach um, a concept, and then I'll say, okay, now go into small groups and half of you are going to teach the other ones like your students. Okay, come back. Let's, let's learn a new concept. Okay, now let's go in and let's, let's teach that to, to each other. Wow. Sounds very intricate. Like teaching a teacher to teach. Yes. <laughs> Sounds very interesting. And yeah. All right. Um, and so we talked about some uh, things you're doing that were in person that had to be flipped virtual. And when we started this, you like, um, there's some things I'm definitely going to learn. I know to do better. Um, what are some things you're going to do that you learned virtually to teach virtually or methods you use teaching virtually that you will use when you go back into the classroom in 2022? <laughs> yeah. So there are, I'm going to, um, so before this happened, I was a the due date is the due date is the due date. You must turn it in on the due date. And I have become a lot more lapsed with that. And 
I really like being more laxed with it. And the way that I tell them is I'm trying to help you become an adult and I'm giving you suggestions to make progress so you don't have a ton at the end. But if you, if you choose to do that, then it's your choice. So I feel like I'm going to still use that process of not being so strict with due dates as I have been in the past. But then as far as technology, there are some really great um, things that I'm using. One of them is called Mentimeter. One of them is called um, the Bingo Baker and then Jamboard, which is newer on Google, I think. I just found out about it. But those three um, are really, really great tools, whether you're in person or not, because they store the data that you can then use later. So instead of trying to remember to keep the huge um, like white papers that you would stick up on the wall and students would write on, and then you'd have to find them in your office like at the end of the semester, the, there are some really great tools that they just stay in like the cloud somewhere and you can access them when you need to. Um, and so those, I think, will definitely lessen the clutter in my office and keep me a little bit more organized. Yeah, definitely. I've talked to high school teachers, just like everything's going to stay digital now. The grading, yes. like, oh, my God, I forgot how like paper, pencil, everything was in education. And now it's like we can be automated like tech can and it'll be, make my life so much easier. Yes. Um, <laughs> And you hit on like kind of like not moving the the kind of like being more flexible with the deadline. And for me, that makes me think of like um, maybe like allowing students to kind of live a little because they're now dealing with more because of the pandemic. Have you witnessed or experienced any students just going through financial hardship or their families going financial hardship? And like, are there any relief efforts that your school is doing to help these students? Yeah, um, so I work at a few universities right now and all of them have food banks or their counseling services have been really ramped up. Um, and we as professors can like submit a care report. And so we're, since we're on the front lines with them, we submit a care report and then people will follow up with them. Um, and yeah, my students have gone through more hardships than, than ever. I've had students who have lost parents to COVID, um, lost siblings to COVID. I've had, I probably, um, I would say 25% of my students have had COVID this semester at some point, whether asymptomatic or symptomatic. Um, and then the financial hardships of, um, most of them, most teachers, most people in, in education work in the restaurant or bar industry to make money. Um, college students in general, I would say do that. And um, for my school that's in Chicago, Chicago has been shut down basically the whole time. Um, and so the financial hardships, definitely. I know financial aid offices are working a lot more closely. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of um, supports, but it also takes them to feel comfortable enough to reach out. Mm -hmm. And I find that that is difficult um, many times for people who have never had to reach out and ask for help before and or college students who are like, no, I'm an adult. I can do this by myself. I don't need any help. And it's like, no, actually like, an adult thing to do is to ask for help right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that's okay. Ask for help and, and, um, and, and we'll support you and we'll help guide you to the correct resources. Gotcha. Well, it's great that the schools that you work at have all these resources for students. And yeah, it's been a very interesting nine months going on, however long this is going to last. Um, mm -hmm. I'm originally from Illinois, so I, I have friends in Chicago and I see like one of them works in restaurants, like shut down, open, closed, outdoors okay, but it looks like indoors at the same time. And 
Yeah. <laughs> all stuff that's happening there. Um, and so you also said you're a consultant, right? And mm-hmm. so how is that, how's your consultancy work fared during this pandemic as well? It's actually really boomed um, because, um, well, especially in March when schools were shut down, a lot of paraeducators needed to have something to do um, because they weren't in the classrooms kind of supporting the one-on-one students. So they're like the aides in the classroom, the paraeducators. Um, and so school districts were looking for anything and everything to provide them training on so that they could still fulfill their contracts, like their union contracts that like, they're going to work seven hours a day and we're going to pay them. Um, so when the pandemic first hit, I was doing probably three or four trainings a week, which is a lot. Um, and mostly for paraeducators. Um, since then it still is, is really, um, booming, I would say more than normal. And um, it doesn't have to do necessarily with COVID, but I do a lot of trainings on trauma-informed practice, which is associated to COVID. But then I also do a lot on DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and um, access. And so there have been, um, with the protests and with Black Lives Matter and with kind of all of the racial unrest that's happened, a lot of school districts are reaching out to say, we need to become an anti-racist school, help us. How do we, where do we even start in small rural areas in Illinois um, where, they, where they say we have no diversity? And I say, yes, you do. <laughs> you live in Peoria County, there is diversity everywhere. Um, and so kind of um, that I think has kind of clumped into the trauma support that's also happening with COVID. Yeah, Peoria, yes, there's a lot of diversity in Peoria. <laughs> Um, that's great that you've been able to kind of like find a bright spot and continue your work uh, and help others while this is happening. It made me think like you're teaching teachers how to teach early education. Where do you see the future after the pandemic going of early education um, now that we've had to all convert to virtual learning? Yeah, um, I don't think early education is ever going to be all virtual again. Like it just, just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um little kids need to be around each other. Um, I think that teachers are learning how to, to do it, but I also think the what the biggest transformation, I think, is parents understanding that play isn't just play. So for a long time in early childhood, we would have parents or other, um, you know, like community members say, well, they're just playing. And it's like, no, it's really intentional play. It's learning through play. There's really like a point to it. And I think now that parents are having to do a lot of the the education at home they there's more of an understanding like oh you actually do a lot you're just not babysitting them you're like teaching them through play and it's like yes that's what we've been trying to tell you um so i think that the biggest transformation will be the view of early childhood um now that it seems like more community members have had to step up to the plate and educate their own children um, and kind of see what early childhood is really all about. You just made like had a huge like blast in my mind when you just said that like play, teach through play, but also there's always been this push for like, let's like baby bear and all those early childhood programs. Like that's very important to get kids on the track to like unlearn it, start their learning early. And like, this is a thing that needs to happen now that parents are like, oh, this is what this is for. And like, they're probably seeing their kids' brains work now and like, oh, wait, this is what the teachers are doing. And I think 
for me as someone who works within an education space, not with students, but has worked with students throughout post-college, um, having people understand what teachers actually do is not just babysit will be probably the, the greatest thing that comes from this pandemic in education. Because as so there's always like, oh, you're just going to school or you're just going to kindergarten. You're just going to play like, no, this is where it all happens, especially if you're not also reinforcing this at home. Like they're definitely getting everything from the school. So that's amazing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you, what has been a bright moment for you this past semester? Um, professionally, it's um, learning all these new things and being able to share my knowledge. I'm someone who really um, loves helping others. And I know that sounds like cliche, but I'm still the go-to person for a lot of colleagues who need help with technology, which that has been something that people have had needed help with a lot. So I've had random phone calls from colleagues I haven't heard from in years saying, Annie, I need your help. What do I do with this? And I'll walk them through it. So professionally, that has been a bright spot, connecting with people that I haven't connected to in a long time. Um, but then personally, it's just been being able to spend time with my son. Um, before COVID, I was driving two and a half hours to and from work. I was gone all the time. My husband was really raising the kids for about four and a half years. Um, and when COVID hit, I kind of just took a step back and um, reevaluated as I'm sh I think a lot of people have, especially females. Um, and so I've just been able to spend the last nine months um, being a mom which is nice, um, but he's also old enough that he can educate himself. He's 11. So like during the day, we're both working <laughs> and then we can spend time together. Um, so both professionally and personally, I've, there, there have been some great bright spots. How is that working at the same time as a student is learning slash working and like keeping them on track uh, while you're also trying to teach your class? How is that working for you? It's actually going really well. Um, we've had some ups and downs, just as everyone has had in the pandemic. Um, and probably in the middle of October, I, uh, my dad retired in October and I called and, and he lives about two miles from us. And so I called him and finally said, I am drowning. Like I am working full time. My son's name is Ahmad. Ahmad is doing school, but like he's not turning things in. Like I just need help. So I'm doing well, except my dad is checking in on him twice a day during school also. So um, the, true, um, the true saying of it takes a village, definitely. Either my son is calling my dad or my dad is here to check in and make sure he's doing homework and those types of things, um, which is really nice. Nice. It's kind of like what you said. An adult thing to do is ask for help and ask for help and you shall receive. So that's great that you have that support system to help you out. Um, and so on the flip side of a bright moment, what has been a low moment for you this semester? Or like, what is the biggest challenge you've had to face this semester? Um, I think the biggest challenge has been the um, support of supporting students who may not realize, so bringing in my trauma perspective, I know that they are all out of their prefrontal cortex. When they're talking to me, they're not really talking to me as they would in a normal situation. They're kind of in their old brain and they're being really reactionary um, because we're all experiencing trauma, they're overloaded, they have all of this other stuff going on. And so I think the hardest part is for me to continually understand that the students who are sending me um, emails at midnight that you know aren't professional um, or who um, are complaining about things and things that in most semesters wouldn't be complained about or students who are experiencing loss in their lives, 
always kind of keeping in my mind, like, it's not against me. (laughs) They're not mad at me. They are dealing with life circumstances with really an immature brain, which is not negative. It's brain, your brain doesn't develop until you're 25. These are 20 year olds, their brain isn't fully developed. Um, And so being able to kind of put that barricade up for me to say, this isn't against me. (laughs) I need to stay calm. I am the adult. And I just need to help guide them through this, this traumatic experience um, that we're all experiencing. That is super amazing. Um, The term, like knowing that Adults really aren't, you're still a youth until you're 24. I think I learned that when I was like 24. Um, I was like grouped into a group, a uh, youth group. I was like, I'm not 24, but okay. I mean, I'm not a youth, but okay, I guess. Um, and just understanding that helps you. And I think a lot of people need to understand like at that age, they're not really ready to make all of these amazing decisions that you have to make as an adult. And so I kind of want to ask you more like, can you talk about trauma-informed practices and what that really means? Yeah, so trauma-informed practices is um, really understanding what's called flipping the lid, flipping your lid, which is when your um, when your amygdala, which is in your old brain, disconnects from your new brain, um, your prefrontal cortex, because stress hormones. So stress hormones basically turns off your learning brain and puts on your survival brain. And so being very aware of that and being able to help deescalate, um, being able to give time, um, knowing that when someone is in that hyper arousal stage, that they're not listening, like, They're listening. They may look like they're listening, but they're not learning anything because their two parts of their brain are kind of disconnected because of stress hormones. Um, And so really having that trauma informed of build relationships, be proactive in building relationships. Um, And so that's kind of when I was reflecting, like I wish I would have built better relationships with my students this semester instead of building them with each other because I think that that would have helped with that trauma informed care. Um, Being aware of the brain and the anatomy of the brain is a big part of it. And really, I mean, the magic is relationships and understanding that not all people have self-talk, you know, like how you talk to yourself in your brain, Um, especially if they've had a lot of um, trauma in their life. That's something that needs to be taught and developed. It's not something that just comes. Um, And so it's just kind of really being aware of um, people's behavior is sometimes something that is part of their unconscious because of the trauma that they've experienced because it does change the chemistry of your brain when you've experienced trauma and haven't really developed the um, resiliency factors that um, that can be built okay mind blown um i I understand it um but i'm thinking so you're teaching um young young people youth um, but also teaching about early childhood. So where does that uh, trauma-informed practice like help them understand their, the young people, the children that they'll be teaching? Yeah, so it's really around the idea of challenging behavior. So what some people might see is like bad behavior. Um, so we really start with it. Like when a child is showing a challenging behavior, it's not because they're trying to get under your skin. It's because um, we have child, everyone, regardless of if you're young or old, have challenging behaviors when you have fear and anxiety. So if you're feeling fear, if your body is sensing fear, it's one of our reactions to go into fight, flight, 
freeze. And so that is what a challenging behavior is. Adults do them too. Adults throw temper tantrums too, but um, really kind of diving into um, understanding the child isn't doing something bad against you. It's that they're hurting and that they're scared. And so what we, we can't react and kind of, um, yell at them or send them away, but it's really embracing them and bringing them in. Um, because a lot of the students, children who have had trauma in their backgrounds are often seen as the challenging children are often sent away. They're sent to timeout. They're sent to the principal's office. They're sent someplace else. And then they're understanding that where they're at is not safe, welcoming, and equitable. Um, and so you want to develop a safe, welcoming, and equitable environment. And that means you trust me enough child that you are going to throw a chair across the room because you know that this is a safe place and then I'm going to keep you safe and you're able to kind of show that emotion. I'm not going to send you away. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to do, I'm going to help be resilient for you. Gotcha. It's going to, it does that and it comes back. <laughs> uh, like listening to that. So we don't know each other at all, actually. Uh, I worked in a school the year after college and I worked with high school students. And like something you just said, like really just clicked with something that happened in the classroom that I was working in. And like, I'm glad I reacted in the way I did. Um, but just the idea that we're, it makes it, me think that we're kind of doing discipline or punishment wrong. Like the way- 100%. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I'm so happy because I feel like I was doing it right. Like, so for, you're saying kids get sent off and you were saying it as like sent to principal's office, sent to whatever, where I work, I learned that term and sent off to like, um, to a different school where you were away from your home to like a kind of like a juvenile home, but not really. And that never made sense to me. I was just like, and this is me coming out of college, didn't go to school for education at all. I was more of a community member. I was like, how can you do this? That's just how I felt. And so I'll never forget, I told students, I will never kick, never kick you out of class because I know what that does to your grades and stuff like that. And I had a kid, a kid cuss me out in class and I was just like, I didn't kick him out. Another teacher did and I wouldn't talk to him. I was like, yo, I told you straight away, I'd never kick you out of class. That's not something I would do because I know how that does, what that does to your grades. And he starts bawling and he's like, both of my parents got arrested this morning. I was like, and I know you, because I know you wouldn't do this to me because we have built a relationship. Um, and yes, and I, I was like, I'll take responsibility because I singled you out because I know your voice. And that's why I kept saying, yo, stop talking, stop talking. But that was my fault. I shouldn't have singled you out in front of everybody. And it's like, you saying this is just like, I'm glad I reacted the way I did, but also like we just, there's the research behind why yes. the stuff we're doing is so incredibly wrong. Um, yeah, not absolutely. At all. So honestly, um, I want to ask you, how do you feel about the phrase, there's no, there aren't bad children, there are just bad decisions? Yes, I agree. I don't think that there are bad children. Um, I think that children sometimes don't have everything to make the choices that will, um, that will give them kind of a good outcome. But I think it's really on the adults and the systems, right? Um, so school was developed under um, uh, like a, basically like a white privilege kind of mentality. And so a lot of the strategies, the zero tolerance policies, um, the way we discipline those types of things, like those are decisions made by adults that impact, um, that impact children. So children aren't bad. It's the decisions that the adults have made that determine. 
determine the the behavior. And so one of the quotes that I really like is um, the behavior is defined by the person who's most annoyed by it. So like we could see, so the cussing, right? So you were saying that person cussed, cussed them out. It didn't bother you. You're, you, weren't, you weren't annoyed by it. You weren't triggered by it. But the teacher who kicked them out was annoyed by it. So that behavior was deemed bad by that teacher, mm. but wasn't deemed bad by you. Gotcha. And so you didn't end up disciplining the, ch- the, the student, right? Um, and so the person who's most, most annoyed by the behavior is the one who defines it. Um, and so I think it's not the, it's not children's, it's children's choices if they've been given the right strategies, but it's really on the adults to make a system that, um, that doesn't perpetuate the, what they would define as challenging behaviors. I'm just going to say this. I'm loving this conversation because I'm <laughs> learning things I don't know much about. Um, so I'm like enjoying all of this. Um, even though it's not even related to the pandemic, it's just, I feel like this is information that a lot of people need to know. So I'm loving it. Uh, a question I have for you is with the trauma-informed practices, how does that fall into an, um, emotional agility and emotional intelligence? And is that just a small piece? Like how do those, do, the, do those connect and how do they connect? They do connect. Um, so, uh, there, it's kind of, okay. So trauma informed practices are associated to what's called a pyramid model, um, which the pyramid model is like a three tiered system. It's in Illinois and I know other States have it also, but it's basically a way to build the social emotional development of, of children and adults. And so the bottom tier is all about relationships and really building those relationships. Um, And that would come into like that emotional intelligence, how you develop that emotional intelligence and how you teach children how to develop it. But the adults need it first. Um, And so they do connect, not like directly, but they do connect. um, And being able to um, really understand what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And that's really associated to trauma-informed practices because a lot of the reactions we have are associated to trauma that we may not even remember because our brains are so amazing. Um, so in, um, in the fifth month of um, in utero, so the fifth month that you're in your mom's belly um, is when you start memories. Um, And those are memories that um, are kind of stored in your brain that you can never access. But if something happened in in that time, it it can react to you. So, for example, there's a a research study that shows that a baby was born with their cord wrapped around their neck at birth. The baby would never have known that unless the story was told over and over and over again. But that that human now, right, that adult can't have any like they have a very visceral reaction to anything close to the front of their neck it like it's like irrational Mm -hmm. and what they're associating that to is is kind of that connection to that in utero memory um before the age of two that's called that's a memory also and that and so before the age of two um we don't really remember things um but those are things that can still impact us so another story is a child who um, was in foster care her mom took her to um, to get her nails done at a, at a nail salon. And when she walked in, she smelled the scent of the nails. Like there's a scent to mm-hmm. it. And she flipped out. Like they had to take her out. They didn't know what was wrong. Well, 
the caseworker figured it out that she was molested as a one-year-old in a nail shop. She couldn't put that together, but that smell triggered her brain to have that kind of traumatic experience reaction. Um, so yeah, sorry, I might've went off on a tangent, but like th those are all, I think, associated to like, you need to understand where your trauma comes from or where your emotions come from. Um, and I just read a really good book. I was trying to remember, it's my by Mark Brackett and it's all about, um, it's all about being able to feel and a permission to feel. That's what it's called. Permission to feel. Um, and it really talks about emotional intelligence. Um, it talks some about trauma, not a whole lot, but it's really linked to that um, idea of the pyramid model of that bottom realm of developing those really strong emotional relationships. Wow. Yes. I, I, I remember a friend who like, I don't know who it was, but they hated when people touched their neck and I had no idea. And I'm like, now I'm wondering, like, is that something from in utero or right. like, in your childhood? Ooh, okay. So I'm going to show them the top for now. Uh, but I do have a question. You kind of touched on it earlier. Um, we know that March, May, June, July, August, September, the focus, I feel like, of the country was on social justice because all of the police killings of Black people um, amidst this time, have you had to have conversations with your students, with your colleagues, just in general about uh, what's going on in the world and how to have those conversations? Or is that something that hasn't really popped up in your teaching at all? No, it comes up a lot. Um, so I wrote a book that came out in 2019, kind of all about this. So my son is black. Um, and so it's a story of a white woman raising a, a, what I call a socially perceived black boy. Um, and so because since I wrote that book, a lot of people will come to me and ask me questions that they may not have someone in their life who else to ask basically a person of color. They, they don't know any person of color. And so they come to me and I try not to answer too much because I'm also not a person of color, but um, I, I will approach it from, um, well, these are the conversations I have to have with my son, right? Like he's in the point of what's called adultification. He, you know, black, especially black boys miss the adolescence. They don't get the adolescence. Tamir Rice was 11 or 12 when he was killed. He was the age of my son, right? So white kids get to have that that freedom to kind of do make those stupid mistakes, right? Those mistakes in that time, but black boys don't get to, black children don't get to. And so my son doesn't play with guns out, Nerf guns outside. My son doesn't do this. And if I had a white child, you could. And so we have those conversations. Um, I have to have conversations with his um, friend's parents and saying like, hey, like, just remember, like Ahmad is seen by police officers as a threat. Like you have to make sure like you, you understand like where they're at, if they're going up to the gas station, what's happening. Um, the talk, right? So we have conversations about the talk um, and the talk, not the sex talk, but the police talk. Um, so um, I, I have a lot of conversations personally with, within my circle, but then professionally, um, I um, am on a few panels with, I'm the only white person. So um, people of color who talk about their experiences, and then I kind of talk about um, a person who is not seen as part of um, kind of a community of people of color, but that I'm having those same experiences raising my son, and I don't know what to do. And other than ask my friends of color or colleagues of color. Um, and so I did a, a post 
um, about adultification when um, George Floyd died, I believe, um, about kind of stop saying like they're doing something wrong. They're not doing anything wrong. There's history of why black bodies are being laid on the street um, for hours on end. Um, and my son and I have conversations. Um, so when Ahmaud Arbery was um, killed, we did the whole like 2.23 and we did a walk and those types of things. So um, I tried to make my community, my professional and personal community aware. Um, and I push back. Like I push back a lot um, on, on people who, um, it's called in-group. So when I'm with a whole bunch of white people, white women who want to talk about saving, you know, all the black children, I speak up and I say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're, you're, you have that perception because you think the way you're living is right. Who says that, that the live that were, you know, like who, who says, who determines that? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've gotten into some heated discussions. I've lost some family and friends, but I think it's important. Um, and right now I'm doing a, a study on with a group of preschool teachers and we're revamping all of their curriculum to be multiculturally really anti-racist based um, to, to make sure that um, just because you have all white kids in your classroom doesn't mean that their families aren't multiracial or doesn't mean that their community isn't multiracial. So what does that mean as you're educating um, and involving them in their, in their community? Sorry, that was another long answer. <laughs> I'm with it. Um, just to touch on the last point you just mentioned, even if they are not multiracial, like you don't know where these kids will go in the future. So you're setting up, at least building a foundation for them. So when they get older, they at least can have some kind of basis to be like, oh, that's not right. I should do something or that's not right. I know that I identify that. So that's great that uh, you guys are doing that. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like my dad gave me the talk. And I didn't even realize it was a talker, but just little things that he would say as I'm done, like, oh, that's why he said, don't do that. That makes sense now. Um, and I wonder with you as somebody who works with um, kind of trauma-informed practices and kind of like basically how I'm understanding is like how your childhood can affect your adulthood and what happens can have an effect. Um, like the idea, and yes, is it is super important to have conversations with black children. Um, what's your thought on, um, you're making them adults too soon because you're like opening their eyes to the world. Like I, that, I feel like that's something you probably grapple with. Like how do you handle that, um, that idea? And that is asked of me a lot. And um, that's one of the found asked of me a lot, especially by white parents, right? Like, well, I don't want to tell them that like police can can kill you or police have guns. And my comeback is, well, why didn't Tamir Rice have that advantage? Why, why, didn't, why didn't he have that privilege of not knowing that police could hurt him um, or children who live um, in um in places that may have more more gun violence, like what? Why does your child have a privilege to not know that when these children are experiencing it? We need to make sure we're developing coping strategies. We need to make sure that we're not um, we're not giving our children more privileges than than other children. And I know that sounds maybe I know people don't agree with me, but that's what I always come back with is because like just because your son or daughter is twelve, twelve year olds 
in the town over don't get that privilege. And so let's just, let's figure out how to have those discussions rather than try to shield and protect our children um, because it's reality, right? Like you're not gonna know if, um, if they're gonna be around, you know, like um, the Boston Marathon where the bombing was or Nashville where the bombing was, like those are things that they need to be aware that they can happen. And here's how you cope with it. Um, community violence, police, policing, just knowing about it. Um, I, I try not to shield and I don't think it's right to shield children from what reality is, but do it in a developmentally appropriate way. Gotcha, and that, that's the key, developmentally appropriate. Um, so now we're going to switch to just more pandemic-based uh, conversation, but all that was super informative. <laughs> I'm excited for people to hear this interview uh, for those parts in particular. Um, but let's talk about technology and working during the pandemic. What technology are you using uh, to educate right now? Uh, so like websites and stuff? Or... Websites, software, communication. Like what are you yep. using uh, and did you have to learn how to use it? And did your students have to learn how to use it? Like what has that whole process been like? Yeah, so I'm usually, I'm using mostly um, open access um, websites. So idea boards, Jamboard, I, Google. So a lot of um, Gmail kind of uh, Google um, apps that are within their, their drive. Um, I didn't necessarily have to learn it, but I had to figure out a way to find things. And so that's kind of the biggest thing is like knowing what words to search with. And really most of the things I've learned is from attending um, other colleagues' classes or attending other training and saying, ooh, I'm gonna use that. Like, let me write that down and I'm gonna investigate that a little bit more. Um, and if anything, looking at two minute YouTube videos <laughs> and saying, okay, how to use this. Um, the biggest challenge I think for my students is that they are very um, phone savvy, Twitter, Snapchat, um, TikTok, those, but like other things that you might think that this generation of students is comfortable with, like just click on a button and see if it works. Like they, they seem more hesitant to that. And so there has been a little bit of a learning curve to help, like, I don't know, just click where it says new, like, that's what I'm going to do. Like either you do it or I do it and we're going to figure out what happens. And so kind of that um, it's okay. If you mess up, you can always go back. Um, mentality has been kind of a learning curve for many of my students. Nice. I feel like that literally answered all of my tech questions. So, we're okay. <laughs> um, and so for your future, you're going to be virtual next semester. And you talked about this earlier, like you've learned so much this semester that you can take into next semester. What are those things you're going to take into next semester? Uh, be prepared. So I have um, my first three weeks mostly done. Um, and so I felt when you're teaching in person, um, I could be more last minute and have things ready to go. You can't do that in this, in a virtual classroom. And so um, really being prepared, having everything uploaded, everything ready. I mean, just everything kind of there. So being more prepared um, and then really intentionally building those relationships. So I already have, um, uh, like breakfast meetings scheduled for students who want to come, office hours scheduled for students to sign up for, just really trying to intentionally build those relationships um, so that we feel like we're not all floundering like we did this semester. Nice. Yeah, definitely. I feel like teaching is already, I mean, you might say your last one, I feel like teaching is already something you kind of have to like prep for to begin with. Uh, but I can't imagine just being on a screen all day and just like, all right, like, are there any, like, laughs and silence? It just it sounds awkward sometimes. So 
Yes. Um, So you are a podcast host, you are a professor, and you're a consultant. Um, Have your career aspirations changed at all because of COVID? Do you have new ideas, old ideas resurging, want to move somewhere else in education? Like, what what are your career aspirations now that COVID or the pandemic has happened? Yeah, um, they haven't really changed. They more changed um, in January of 2019 when I decided to leave my tenure track position and move more into consultancy and adjunct work and um, those types of things. And so I was already in the mindset of change when COVID happened. Um, And I think it was kind of serendipitous that it happened because now I get to be home with my son and really kind of help with that. If I was still in my old position I don't know how this year would have turned out. It would have been nuts because um, my husband works um, full time every day. He hasn't kind of missed a day of work during pandemic time. Um, so that hasn't changed, but it's definitely um, made me more um I've, I've gotten on like LinkedIn more and Twitter more and kind of made my professional self known more than I might have in the past now because we're all communicating virtually. Got it. And let's talk about digital conversations. What is what is the podcast about? Yeah, so um, we talk about um, basically how to have difficult conversations in education. Um, and so there's lots of um, books out there for businesses, for people in business and for people in um, the medical profession, but educators don't have anything like that. And so it's really based on a lot of what we've talked about today, um, talking about relationship building and how to build relationships with colleagues. What are some strategies for administrators to build relationships? How do you um, build relationships between and among students? Um, And when those difficult conversations come up, being very aware of your past traumas, being aware of communication blocks, communication barriers, and just kind of going down that process of really understanding um, how to communicate with people and what your implicit biases are telling you. Um, so when I first started it, um, I would do lots of trainings and I have lots of tattoos. I usually um, have them showed off when I, when I do a training and I say, how many of you had a judgment of me when you saw my tattoos? Be honest, right? And most people raise their hand and I say, okay, that could have been a communication block with you, right? And so kind of, um, diving into how we communicate, why we communicate and how we can really um, make a welcoming, safe, and equitable environment for all people who come into a building, a classroom, an environment, a, an educational setting. Wow. So if you guys want any more of the conversation we had a few minutes ago, go listen to our podcast. I'm just like, all right, I'm going to listen to this because I feel like I learned a lot. So I'm super interested. And it's difficult conversations. You imagine you can find on every uh, platform. Yep. Okay. No, we're not. I'm not ending the conversation. I just wanted to say that. Give you a quick point. <laughs> um, and so you kind of work in the mental, like some of the stuff you talk about is really related to mental health. And so for you personally, how, what are you doing to support your mental health during this time? Um, lots of Starbucks runs. <laughs> um, no, but I am, um, I'm asking for help when I need it. And I, that is not in my personality. Um, so um, I probably asked a little too late when I called for that SOS to my dad in October. I probably needed it in August, right? Um, there have been some times when um, 
I have two stepdaughters who are sometimes here also. And sometimes I'll just text my husband and be like, you have to take tomorrow off. I cannot do it again. Like, and so being able to ask for help and knowing the people in my life, understanding like, oh, Annie's asking for help. Like, okay, she actually means it. She's not someone who just asks for help all the time. Um, so really reaching out to people and stepping out of my comfort zone to ask for help. Um, and then taking kind of time for myself. So reading, I'm not, I don't usually read um, like for fun. I read for work. So I'm reading more for fun. Um, lots of binge watching things, lots of movies. Before we recorded today, um, my son and I just finished our second movie of the day. So um, just really trying to log off of my computer because that's something that's really hard when you're working from home because you're kind of always at the office. <laughs> um, and so logging off. Got it. Nice. Uh, and so what is the sentiment around COVID-19 in your community? Like, do you have a sense that they're taking it seriously? That it's kind of like, oh, it's a thing, but like mask wearing, how is that, how's that going in your community? Yeah. Uh, so in my community, it's, um, going pretty well. Um, all most, I would say 99% of places you have to wear a mask. Um, in Illinois, there is a governor mandate that you're supposed to wear a mask and bars and restaurants are supposed to be closed. Now, not every bar and restaurant is following that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, most places are wearing masks. Every place we go, people have masks on. Um, if my if we order out a lot to support um, small businesses and if we order um, curbside and they have people inside, we don't order from them again because they're not following the mandate. Um, and so we are trying to patronize places that are following the mandate. Most places, so we are, live on a river. And so we have Peoria on one side and East Peoria on the other. East Peoria is not really following mandates, um, but Peoria is. So we kind of stay on this side of the river and we don't go out all that often either. But Illinois in general is taking it pretty seriously. Cool. That's good to know. My home state's doing something right. <laughs> you probably know the governor history of Illinois. So Right. <laughs> and is there anything else you'd like to share before we conclude this interview? This has been fun. Okay, well, um, what are your social media handles? Because I know you have them in case you want to follow you and gather some of this great information you're just giving out. Right, yep. So on Twitter, um, I'm at, on Twitter, I'm at AK Ranking, which is R-E-I-N-K-I-N-G. And then on Facebook and Instagram, I'm at Ranking Education Consulting. Got it. So just to summarize this, this wonderful interview we just had, this is Dr. Ranking. She is a professor, a podcast host, and a consultant uh, focusing on early childhood development slash education. And if you came in, if you listen to like the middle part of the interview, you're gonna have so much knowledge about <laughs> why we discipline children terribly and what you can do to make things better. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot about trauma-informed practices and how our minds literally will pull things that we don't even know to uh, kind of inform our behaviors and why we need to know about our histories, our personal histories and our personal traumas. So I wanna thank you so much for sending in on this interview and helping out. You're teaching teachers to teach children. And so I say teachers are our superheroes because they do so much work, they are underappreciated and they're really developing our future uh, adults who will be our future leaders and future whatever else they decide to be. And so you're also helping them to help them. So you're also a superhero in, in uh, chain link. 
procession or however you would say that. So I want to thank you so much for everything that you do and for sitting in this interview. And thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great. If you want to learn more about Project Teachers Lounge or check out some exclusive content, head over to lunchtraymedia.com slash Project Teachers Lounge.